Morning, everyone. Ah, oh, sunshine was out this morning. I was so thankful. I'm sure you are as well. And uh, if there was an ability to open some windows in here to let it in, we would be doing that. Um, if it was a little warmer, I might even say, let's just go outside and, and uh, handle it that way and do the entire service out there. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Uh, if you're new here this morning, uh, my name is Tony Hunt. I'm, I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we're in the midst of a series in this book called Acts that was written by a man named Luke, who also wrote the book Luke. And he is literally giving us an account of the, the early stages of the church, the first few years, so that we would know what happened post the resurrection of Christ to establish what we now know is a 2,000-plus year ministry and movement across the world. And, uh, and so today we're going to be in, in Acts 19. Next week we're going to be in a little bit of a brief Easter series. And then we're going to be going into what a disciple is for a few weeks. And then we'll come back to the book of Acts for the summer. So today is it for about, a, about two months uh, on the book of Acts. And then we'll pick up the very end of it over the summer months. So I don't know about you, but uh, when you get to know somebody for a length of time, and, uh, and, and you're going along and you think you know them and then something happens that just destroys your understanding of who they are and you're like, who are you? That can be an interesting moment if that moment is your spouse. That happened to me, believe it or not. Now, uh, in spite of whatever maybe your political views are and so on, but uh, my wife comes from a family where guns are not an issue or a fear. Uh, in fact, uh, my uh, in-laws love to hunt and, uh, and they love to collect those kind of things. And so uh, when I was dating uh, Kristen on my second date, I came home. And if you know that country song where he says, I'll be right here cleaning my gun, talking about a man who's taking his daughter out. Well, guess what? My father-in-law had all his guns out on display. <laughs> when I came home, I, I came back, brought Kristen home. I come in, and he has all these rifles and shotguns and pistols out, and I'm like, oh, my God. He had that funny look on his face like, yeah, don't mess with my daughter, right? <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments. And, and, and so, you know, it was kind of interesting because interesting it's like, all right, this is kind of a unique family I'm marrying into. All right, this is, I can handle that. So my wife and I are married for two years, and uh, we came to her parents' house for a gathering, and, uh, and I see that my father-in-law had some straw bales set up with targets on it, and they were doing uh, target shooting with pistols. Now, I grew up hunting uh, small game, pheasants and quail and, and duck and goose, and so I had shotguns, but I never really fired pistols before. And so we come over, and he goes, hey, you want to try? And I'm like, sure. And I'm, you know, I'm sure I looked pretty ridiculous how I was holding that pistol because I really hadn't done that before. So, you know, I'd watched plenty of enough movies. And so Dirty Harry, you know, it's like make my day, you know, kind of looking down, and I, I fire, and I, I hit the sheet of paper on the, on, the, on the straw bales. And I'm like, all right. So I shoot, and I finally get it within the circle and, and so on. And then uh, my father-in-law looks to my wife, and and he goes, do you want to shoot a few? And she's like, sure. So she goes over. She grabs a pistol, first three shots, bullseye. <laughs> I'm looking over at her like, who are you? 
Like, I have been married to this girl that knows how to shoot pistols. I didn't have a clue that she even knew how to shoot a gun. And here it is. She had, and I'm looking at her like, have you done this before? <laughs> and she's looking at me like, well, yeah. And it's like, but I had no idea. And it kind of got a little bit weird for me because it's like, I thought I knew her. And there was this whole side of her that I just did not know. Now you're thinking, I'm never messing with Kristen again. But uh, it's just one of those moments where it just like really stood out. You think you know someone and then you realize you don't. Well, there is a passage in Scripture now, I mean, it's, there are many passages found in the Bible that, that make me scratch my head and think, where is this going? Like, what, what's its meaning? And uh, because it can either unnerve you or it could just be like, it just seems mysterious. And, but in this case, the passage I'm going to actually have you read first before we get to Acts unnerves me. And so... What I have you turn to Acts 19. That's going to be the primary text, but I want you to just keep your finger there. Turn to Matthew 7. We're going to look at a portion in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus speaking, and it, and it, and it can really, again, cause a little bit of fear in all of us. Now, in this text, in the verses just prior to where we're going to be reading in verse 21, just prior to that, Jesus is helping the people know that there are going to be many who look like sheep, behave like sheep, smell like sheep, and then hang out with sheep. But they're not sheep. And if you know anything about how Jesus referred to his followers, he referred to his followers as sheep. So he's saying there are going to be people that are going to be with us. They're going to look like us. They're going to behave like us. They're going to hang out with us. But they're not us. In fact, he says they're even wolves in sheep's clothing. They're looking to destroy the flock. And then the natural question is, is he knows his audience is thinking, well, then how would we even know? who the wolves are and who the sheep are. And he says, well, you'll know them by your, their fruits. So you'll see that if it's a good tree, it's going to bear good fruit. If it's a bad tree, it's going to bear bad fruit. All right, that makes sense to me. You'll know them by their fruit. But then he says what he says in verse 21, and this is the head scratcher that's going to connect us to Acts 19. Verse 21 of Matthew 7 says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. How many of you, let's be honest, how many of you have read that text and just like, what? I mean, think about this. If you really let it sink in, these are people that will say, I have casted out demons in your name. I have done miracles in your name. I mean, how many of us have casted out demons? Maybe a few of us. But how many of you have done miracles in the name of Jesus? How many of you have actually prophesied in the name of Jesus, full of power? When you start talking about those kind of manifestations, you would think, is that not fruit? Referring to what Jesus has just said. You'll know those who are mine by the fruit that is on the tree. So if it's good fruit, 
then they're good people. If it's bad fruit, it's bad people. But here he's saying, there will be some who will come to me having casted out demons, who will have performed miracles, who will have also prophesied in the name of Jesus. And he'll say, I never knew you. This troubled me significantly for many years because I'm thinking through, it's like, well, I've never done those kind of incredible, passionate things in the name of Jesus, and yet there will be people that will do that, and I'd be thinking, that would be amazing. Could you imagine the experience or the level of intimacy you would feel to have done those kind of things in the name of Jesus? I've never done that, and yet you're saying some of those people will actually, you'll say to them, I never, never knew you? How? Can that be? Well, when I look at this text, some things come out that are, that are clear that I think we need to receive from it. First of all, you can know who the Lord is and yet not know him. That's an interesting point. You can know who the Lord is yet not know him. Some of you can know who my wife is, as I said earlier, but you may not know her. You could think you know me, or you at least know who I am, but you may not know me. And so just saying, Lord, Lord, does not mean that you are actually submitted to the Lordship and his will. Verse 21 kind of gives a clue about the difference of somebody who Jesus knows and somebody who Jesus says, I never knew. So it says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. So there's something about this idea that's like you can do things for Jesus who you know about, but yet really not know him because you're not operating under his true lordship. In other words, he truly is Lord leading your life and you're submitted to it. And even, again, this is going into this text. So you look at this and it's like, okay, So those who truly know Jesus are the ones who are, when they say Lord, they mean it. They are a part of that uh, that aspect that he is leading their life and they're submitted, submitted to it. But it also means that you can say a lot of things, you can do a lot of things, but honestly, while words can be powerful, they don't necessarily reflect truth. So, you have to trust that when I'm speaking to you, I'm giving you a lot of words. But you would have to, over time, take measures to whether or not they reflect truth. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the word of God is there and accessible before you so you can test to see what is true and what is not by what we are saying here. But here you got people saying, Lord, Lord, and while that's powerful, and they're even able to cast out Demons in the name of that Lord, it does not always mean that the truth is that they know that Lord. So even a display of power in the name of Jesus does not necessarily mean then that there's a relationship between that individual and Jesus. That's difficult to accept. That if you could do something so powerful, but yet have zero relationship with Jesus, that That's shattering to me. It's pretty surreal then to think that someone can heal in the name of Jesus, cast out demons, even speak prophetically, yet not know him. 
How can someone who comes to that level of actually seeing that power yet not surrender to him? We looked at a person earlier in the book of Acts named Simon who was very enamored by the power being manifested in the disciples and, and he wanted to buy it. He was all about the prestige it would bring. Let me have a little bit of that. Let me give you some money so I could have that same power. So I guess you can see in Simon's life how it is possible that someone can see the power of God yet never surrender to him. It, it becomes something else. It becomes, you know, seeking that next experiential moment rather than truly seeking the power behind that moment. So ultimately what Jesus is saying is you can believe in the power of the name of the Lord. You can even acknowledge that he is the Lord. But if you do not have a relationship with the Lord and you are not living according to his will, his statement is, I don't know you. Ultimately saying, you're not saved. You're not secure in the hands of God. You could not hope for eternity with God because he does not know you and you do not know him. I'm still left with how can this be possible to see God's name be used so powerfully before your eyes yet have a disconnect relationally with him. Can this truly be possible? Can somebody be that cold, that stubborn, that they can see all of that and yet not know him? That brings us to the passage in Acts 19. To give a little context, we're going we're to begin in verses 8 to 12, and, and you're going to see some things that are going on, and it will help us understand the connection from Matthew 7 to what's following in verse 13. So let's begin in Acts 8, and you're going to see something that's highly unusual and, quite frankly, bizarre. All right? And we'll just call it what it is. So verse 8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and, and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, that is, the church. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Okay, believe it or not, right? Ripley's would probably put this on their show or in one of their wax museums if this was happening in our day where literally aprons that had been worn by Paul or handkerchiefs that he had maybe wiped his eyes with or his nose were taken so that they could be taken to somebody that was back in their homes and there was actually healing or sickness. Now when Tom Brady's jersey was stolen a few weeks ago, it wasn't because that man in Mexico thought this will heal my village. It's because it was about money. 
That was the only thing that was of value. There was sentimental value to that jersey and it had no power in it whatsoever. But when people were stealing from Paul, the objects that were belonging to him, it's because there was a, a clinging to a hope that perhaps that object could come and bring healing to somebody they really cared about. And the crazy thing of it is, it worked. It worked. And that there were literally objects that had been near Paul that were taken elsewhere and actually heal people. So how do you make sense of this? Well, first of all, you need to understand that in the early church, God was showing that they are where his power and his approval reside. He was validating his church before the people so that they knew. It wasn't in how those who are opposing the way, that's not where God's power resides or his approval, it's with this church called the way. So persecution as a result, because now there's this battle for the hearts and minds of the people, it's now happening right in front of them. And so Paul just took the show up the street to a different hall. Since the synagogues weren't going to allow for him, he went to the hall of Tyrannus and, and began to speak. And for two years, he was winning the hearts and minds of the people of Ephesus. So while the persecution was certainly there, it only strengthened the church. And God's power was being uh, displayed regularly, and as a result, it was validating the church. And yes, we can see throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit was empowering different leaders to perform amazing signs, which again is showing God's validation of the church. Now, some people might think, is this consistent with the character of God? Yes. I mean, let's consider some of the past situations that, that we might see in Scripture. First of all, we know that God will perform signs, and some of those signs can be a bit unusual, like these handkerchiefs and, and the aprons. But you can go back into Old Testament and think of staffs, manna and quail, rocks, pouring out water. I mean, it is consistent with the character of God that he will show his power through the unusual things to show his validation. Jesus, too, unusual things happen. I mean, Jesus could just simply speak and somebody would be healed, right? So then why in the moment did, when there was a blind man did he spit in dirt, create mud, put it on his eyes and tell him to go to water? If I was an audience there, I'd say, first of all, gross. Second of all, it's like, well, I've seen, I've heard, in this case, you're blind, I've heard that he has just spoken and people are healed, so why am I getting his spit and mud on my eyes and I have to go somewhere else to find healing? Again, unusual. How about the woman who had been bleeding for years? Jesus didn't say a word. What did she do? She merely touched his coat. And she was healed. Strange, bizarre, unusual. But again, common throughout Scripture. There's something about objects that have been near the presence of God. That is something that is, again, consistent throughout Scripture. You have here objects like aprons and handkerchiefs that have been near Paul. But where was, where was Paul, what was Paul near to? The presence of God. 
Paul was drawn close to the Lord, and as a result, the things that were near Paul, when people by faith realized there was power of Paul, they received the healing that they were desiring. That woman who reached out to the coat of Jesus received the healing she needed because she believed in the power that was sourced there. How about the articles in the temple? The Holy of Holies, that inner place where the presence of God was there. Those articles became so holy by being in the presence of a holy God that anybody who touched them would lose their lives due to the holiness of those objects. Now, were those objects alive? No. In fact, these things were all merely pointing to the fact that they had been in the presence of God. Was Paul somebody to be worshipped? No. It just showed that he was in the presence of God. So it is, it is always a risk when God displays his power through people that there is, an, uh, there is a temptation to put a divine quality upon the object rather than upon the God who empowered that moment. That is true also throughout Scripture. I mean, how else would people begin to worship the things that were in the temple rather than worshiping God himself? How is it that, that as time goes on, people began to worship the miracles of Jesus rather than worshiping Jesus? How is it today that people will come in the house to worship and they worship worship rather than worshiping God? It happens still. But we must not lose sight Signs are used by God throughout Scripture to, again, to display his presence, offer his approval, and validation. Moses, Joseph, Daniel, the Twelve, and yes, even leaders of this early church are all examples how God was showing signs to validate his leadership. I mean, Moses struggled with the idea, how will these people follow me, somebody who has a speech impediment, somebody who's been living out in the desert, who's been running away for 40 years, how are they ever going to follow me? And what did God give them? A staff. Just do a few things with this staff and they'll know I'm with you. It's the validation of his leadership. And, and again, those people could end up worshiping the acts of miracles around him or they can end up worshiping the God behind it. Which then brings us to the text that ties to what I read in Matthew. Again, in Matthew, the question is, you have this great display of power where people are actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're actually prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're performing miracles in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, I never knew you. I think we can understand it when you're about to read what we're going into. So let's read starting in verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. <laughs> 
When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. All right, this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It's kind of one of those, booyah. God shows up, does something pretty powerful to show that his name is to be revered. So in this situation, little context, you have these sons of Sceva, seven of them. Sceva was a chief priest, and these guys were obviously now, because they're sons of the chief priests, are part of the priesthood. And so they are a part of the shepherds of the Jewish nation. And so they're going around, casting out demons in the name of Jesus, who they do not know. But you need to understand this. The text suggests they were successful. They were successfully casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So we know that they knew who Jesus was. I mean, after all, the way was under a lot of oppression from the priesthood. So they were hearing probably of their father being frustrated uh, with the way that church, that movement following after Jesus, but these sons are like, wow, that's pretty powerful what they're doing out there. Yeah, let's try it. I mean, after all, those disciples seem to be winning the hearts of the people, and we would like that for us. So how about let's try it? And, and so they go out, and they invoke the name of Jesus, and a demon leaves somebody. <gasps> it works. It works. You see, what's interesting in this text, you learn something. We know that they clearly knew who Jesus was. We knew, we know from the text that they knew about Paul. So it's interesting that they go to the demons and say, okay, come out of this man in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, that's just a dead giveaway that's like, oh, you really don't know who you're talking about. And this was one smart demon, I will say. But before we get there, just a couple things that, that I think we can draw from in, in seeing this in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. There's something significant in this. First of all, they could not invoke a first-person relationship with Jesus. They couldn't invoke it because they didn't know him. They needed to utilize a third-person relationship in order to even say the name. Clearly, they had been awed by Paul. So it wasn't that they chose, well, whom the way preaches or whom this person preaches. I mean, after all, it's Paul that they just said, you know, heard. They're hearing that his aprons, his handkerchiefs are going to other places and people are getting healed. Pretty amazing. I want some of that. And we know that Paul's doing it in the name of Jesus. So, okay, let's do it in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Then you cover the bases. Again, they're motivated to be shepherds of the people because that's their position. So they had an invested interest to maintain their influence over the people. So if they don't do something quickly, the hearts and minds of the people are going to leave the priesthood as their shepherds and follow after a different movement. After all, Paul's already had to move his teaching to a different place other than the synagogue. So the masses are not gathering at the synagogue where the priests would serve. 
They're at the hall of Tyrannus. So you can see the desperate nature that could easily come up within the next generation of priesthood, these seven brothers. But instead of seeking answers from Paul or seeking the same relationship that Paul has, which would make sense if you want to experience what they're experiencing, wouldn't it make sense to build a relationship with the ones that are displaying this power and try to understand? No, they just wanted the power. They didn't want the relationship. That became clear. I mean, Paul's been there for two years. They wanted the power but they did not want the relationship. So please hear that. So eventually, as they're going around doing this, they ran into a wise and more powerful demon that saw through their charade. You see, demons do know a lot. They don't know as much as we want to ascribe to them. We often think that Satan can read our minds. Can't do it. He, learned, he might have, he may not even know your name. He may not even know you exist. Satan's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. We can't ascribe to him what is only God. But he has a structure, an infrastructure of leadership. And so as you go down the ranks, which uh, again, in, we find in Scripture, Paul talks about this. There are princes, there are governors in the spiritual realm of evil forces. And so as you go down the ranks of the spiritual forces, you get down to the demons in Ephesus. And these demons knew Paul, but notice it says we know about Paul. But they said they knew Jesus. Again, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus. These demons are not saved, but yet they know Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. These demons know that he died on the cross. They know that he rose again on the third day. They don't struggle with belief in any of that. But yet, they don't know Jesus. They're not in relationship with him. They're not submitted to his lordship. And it's also true that demons are a varying power. Jesus spoke to this. There were disciples, his disciples had gone out and were frustrated because in this particular situation, they could not cast out the demons. And Jesus said, well, with this kind, you must do so by prayer. Which is kind of interesting to me because I'm thinking I would pray before any time I got in front of a demon. But he said, with this kind, you have to pray. My guess is fast and pray. You have to prepare yourself to confront those kind of demons. So there are different varying powers of demonic influence. So prior to this, these seven sons of Sceva had run into apparently not as smart or as powerful of demons. But in this situation, a single demon and a single man is being confronted, and the end result was not pretty for them. I mean, that demon, single demon, one man that that demon possessed, took on seven, and they all left the house naked and bleeding. So if the whole point of this, those seven brothers was to gain public esteem by their abilities to do the same things as the apostles, whatever public esteem they had built up is shattered in this moment. They're humiliated. 
I mean, they're leaving a house that they'd gone into, and people knew there's a demon-possessed man in there. Those seven brothers are going in there. They've been successful before, but they come running out, bleeding and with no clothes on. My guess is that was the end of the leadership of those seven brothers. They probably didn't have the confidence to go and lead publicly again. So then the question becomes, how does the public handle this? They've been seeing Paul do incredible things in the name of Jesus to the point where they were trying to grapple for his possessions to help some of their needs. Now they've seen these seven brothers trying to copy uh, Paul and, and they see what happens to them. So what do you do as, a, as, a, as an, a region, a culture, a city? How do you respond to this? And that's where when you see in verse 17, it says, when this became known to Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So the public response was fear. They recognized that honor and respect was due the name of Jesus, and you handle it with great care. I mean, I'm thinking through, it's like, okay, so Paul successfully invoking the name of Jesus. These seven sons of Sceva tried to do the same thing, and they literally were humiliated publicly. So what does this mean? It means you don't dare, you don't dare misuse the name of Jesus. You don't do it, or you will reap publicly the consequences of that. And so in this, it says that they now held in high honor and respect the name of Jesus. So people were going to be very careful to speak the name of Jesus because they didn't want public humiliation. They didn't want the disaster that was experienced by those seven brothers. But literally what has happened now, when you see this, this name being established higher and, and being recognized with that kind of honor and respect, guess what has just happened? The public of Ephesus has now made Jesus, his name, rise to the level of the third commandment. The third commandment is this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You see, in the culture, the Judaic culture, they understood that when the name of God was misused, you were at the risk of God's judgment. So when they see the name of Jesus being misused and the end result being the humiliation of those seven sons, they now raise Jesus' name to a level you don't misuse it, lest you reap the consequences. Now, they may not have made in their mind the connection that we've just established that Jesus is God, but they have made a very clear connection that his name is to be revered to that level. Now, we know that people who are seeing and hearing the message of, of the gospel, Jesus Christ, were hearing that Jesus is the Son of God. He was equal with the Father, and as a result, his name was being honored in the church called the Way. 
So the connection was not difficult for those who are following after Christ. But at least publicly, whether you knew Jesus or not, his name now hit the level of Yahweh. His name now hit the level of Yahweh. You would never, if you're a Jew, misuse the name of Yahweh lest you were fearful of condemnation or judgment. And now you would never do something with the name of Jesus unless, in an pro- improper way unless you were willing to take on the judgment and condemnation of God. It became clear as a result of this that it was the power of Jesus' name, not Paul, not Peter, not the early apostles, not these people that want to charade as if they know anything. The power is not in the individuals. The power is in the name of Jesus. So when you walk out of this room today, what should be cemented in your mind is the power of the name of Jesus is supreme. The thing that separates those who are children of God and versus those who are not it are those who bear the name of Christ upon them. Those who are part of the church that can display the power of God. The difference isn't that individual of faith or a lack of faith. The power is in the name of Jesus. And as a result, the power of that name can be used by even people who do not know him, and results can happen. Stories after stories after stories have been written about people who knew about Jesus, and in a moment of incredible need, maybe their life is at risk, maybe they're in a foxhole where they don't think they can get out. They cry out to Jesus. They cry out to Jesus. They invoke that name. And if God releases them, they say they will surrender themselves to Jesus. So the name of Jesus is powerful even to those who do not know him. But as a result, we must revere and respect that name lest we suffer great consequences. That's why I can handle coaching baseball hearing all kinds of stuff coming out of the mouths of kids. But when I hear the name of Jesus used in that line of profanity, it does something to me. It cha- it's a game changer for me. And it doesn't feel good. I don't know what it is other than as time goes on and the Holy Spirit changes you, but I can, because again, I don't use the language of the world, it just doesn't affect me to be around that language. I don't use it. I just recognize I can't expect them to live according to a standard without the help of the Holy Spirit. So I do not project upon them my lifestyle. I shine the light of Christ. But even when an absolute pagan says the name of Jesus in an inappropriate way, I, I just, I out of mercy crowd is like, God, help them know that name. That's my cue. When I hear a, a student, a player, say that name, it's like, God, help them to know that name, where they would never want to use that name in that manner ever again. One day, 
at one game, one of my players said that name, and this player I knew knew Jesus. And I turned around, I said, you know better. Don't use that name again. What I didn't realize is the entire team heard me say that. I didn't hear that name said in that manner for the rest of the season. And I'm okay with that. Oh, the name of Jesus. Going back to what Jesus said in Matthew. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who know me, he says, are the ones who know me as Lord and submit to my Father's will. And that's really where we want to come at today. I wouldn't want anybody to walk out of this room knowing about Jesus, but not knowing Jesus. I wouldn't want you walking out of here being like, oh, there's power in the name of Jesus whom Tony preaches. That's ridiculous. I, I think the demons would laugh at you if you said that. I would want you to know Jesus personally. I would want you to know Jesus that he becomes the most intimate thing in your life. He becomes your Lord. And when you experience that, you'll know the power of the name of Jesus. Let's pray. So Jesus, uh, this has been about you. I know I've seen quite a few things where it's like, there is validation. I know the name of Jesus is powerful and I know, Jesus, you are real. But God, I, I, I pray and Jesus, I also ask of you that you would reveal yourself to anybody here that only knows about you but doesn't know you. That, that the statement of I never knew you would never be the truth any, ever again. And God, I ask that today for those of you, those of us who actually know your son Jesus, that you would cause a pride and a, and a joy of knowing that name to well up within us that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of that name. May you find joy in the way we worship now as we lift up the name of Jesus above every name. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly bless on all those who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you do not know Jesus, you only know about him, we'd encourage you to come and talk with some of the prayer people that are up front. There's power in that name. He can change your life. 
but it could also be that you're in need of some help in the name of Jesus. There could be something you're praying so fervently for, but, but you are, you're desperate and you want somebody to come alongside you to pray with you in the name of Jesus. Also, those of us up front would be glad to do so. The power's not us. The power's in us in the name of Jesus. And we would love to pray those kind of prayers with you and for you. So in the name of Jesus, find faith. In the name of Jesus, you can find healing. In the name of Jesus, you can find help. And in the name of Jesus, you can know the Father God. So on that name, we dismiss you only by his power and his name be exalted. Amen.